Simon and the family band. Thank you. Just, just love it when the Lord just comes. You know, it's what we come for, right? Just had a brief conversation with one of my favorite doctors in the back there. It takes a team of doctors to keep me going. And uh, he said to me, along with uh, in so many words, why would I spoil this neat moment in the Lord by preaching, basically is what he said to me. And uh, before you all say amen, just to spite him, I went back into my office and I opened a Diet Coke and I smoked a cigarette. Right. Actually, only one of those things is true. I'll let you decide <laughs> which one might be true. <laughs> you know, overcoming a bad reputation uh, it can be tough. Once you get a reputation, it can be tough to overcome it. If you're a one restaurant in a chain of restaurants and you get E. coli or something that shows up, the whole chain seems to develop a bad reputation, doesn't it? It can also be as difficult to live up to a good reputation. I was thinking, what, I wonder what it would be like to be John Christ or Tim Hawkins at a party, you know? Everybody always just wants you to be funny all the time, right? What would they be like in a Bible study? You know, when they wanted to be serious and have a serious conversation, they have a reputation. They're such hilarious comedians. Uh, they have a reputation to live up to. Well, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, I think suffers from its own reputation among Western believers. And it's been so shrouded in mystery and so kind of convoluted in the explanation of it that it has a reputation of a book that you probably wouldn't need to visit very often, right? You'd rather be in Philippians or Ephesians or even 2 Samuel or something before you want to start wading your way through the book of Revelation because of its reputation. And the trouble with that is it's a beautiful book. It is a beautiful expression of the Father's love to the world and the consummation of history. It is a, it is a tremendous and lovely book. And uh, last week, Pastor Christian began a series, The Seven Letters to the Revelation, and started with that wonderful message, Church of Ephesus, that we must remember our first love, right? Isn't that just so easy to accidentally slide away from and so refreshing when somebody comes along and says, remember, remember how it was in the beginning when you just couldn't stop smiling, you just couldn't stop thinking about the Lord, you couldn't, you couldn't wait to crack the Bible open and see what was going to be in there next, put there just for you. And I was just so encouraged by his word last week. So we're going to make our way over the remaining uh, most of the weeks of the summer through these seven letters. And today I'd like to move on to the next letter in the book of Revelation, which is the, the letter to the church in Smyrna. And it's in chapter 2 of Revelation. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 11. And just to give you some important context, this is one letter of seven, as you can see, uh, of, of these seven churches. So the seven churches that are listed in the book of Revelation, first in chapter 1, and then each, each in turn in chapters 2 and 3, uh, comprise this very, very group of churches in Asia Minor, which to us would be present-day Turkey. And uh, you look at that list of churches there, and you see, well, I don't see some of my favorite churches, like Galatians and Corinthians and Colossians, and where are the Philippians? And you see, that well, they're in another part. They're in another area. And uh, this is kind of, you know, when we often think of those, those churches in the New Testament that we're more familiar with, it's because they were the Apostle Paul's churches, if you will, most of which he planted and obviously cared for as he wrote these important letters that now 
now form our Bible. But in this case, I really think that these are, these are John's churches. Remember, there were other churches, or there are other apostles out planting churches and spreading the gospel. And I really think that these are the churches that were on John's heart. They, they were really important to him. This is, remember, the Revelation was written by the apostle John while he was on the Isle of Patmos, which is just about 50 miles uh, off the coast of, of Ephesus there. And you can see how close that was and how close these churches were to John's heart when he wrote these things and wrote these seven letters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So for me, when I look at those seven churches and I see them in particular, I think this is John's version of God's country, you know? He knows there are other churches, but this is God's country to John. How many of you know what I'm talking about when you talk about God's country? Now, before you raise your hand, I, wanted, I want you to notice something. I couldn't help but notice as I was studying this this week that this was a mail route, actually. This would have been a sequential route in which these, this scroll was delivered, and it forms a certain shape of God's country for the Apostle John. And I could, you can't help but notice what God's country is today. It just so neatly... How, how can one miss it, right? How can one even not see that? That God's country... Oh, my goodness. You knew it was true in your heart, didn't you? You knew, you knew that I could have only come from God's country, right? You knew it in your heart. And now I have shown it to you graphically and scripturally, and so you shall forever know. If it's any consolation to you, if we did this, I think Columbus would be more like Jerusalem. Okay, so if that helps you at all, if that, if, if that helps you at all. These seven churches are representative of a wide variety of issues and local contexts that cover, in these seven letters, that cover a, just a wide range of important topics for being Christians. You know, sometimes people ask, if you, if you could only have one part of the Bible, what would it be? And of course, I would, it's so difficult to answer because we love the Bible so much. But, you know, in addition to some gospel record, I find that these seven letters to the churches contain so much helpful information, just like last week. Remember your first love, that if I were forced, it would be a gospel perhaps the seven letters to the churches. So it's really representative, not just of those seven churches, but of issues and contexts that are so much uh, wider. Today's passage in Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Smyrna, beginning in verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now remember, each one of the letters was written to an angel, could have been an angel, could have been a pastor, could have been, it's, it's a little difficult to know for sure, but to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Who's that? Jesus, of course. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let's pray, Lord. As we take a few minutes to look into this passage, we invite your Holy Spirit, Lord, 
No one here wants to be in charge. No one here wants to be sought after. We want you to be in charge and you to be sought after in our gatherings, Lord. And so we invite your Holy Spirit to come and to take these words, which I believe you've given to me, Lord, but I hold with such a loose hand that you can you could change them all or retranslate them when they leave my lips to the ears of these your beloved here. But I surrender this time to you. And I just ask that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, whenever you read and study the book of Revelation, I really encourage you to be looking for three separate things. And these can have really a broader application to other books of the Bible as well. But whenever you read it, I, I first of all encourage you to, to try to understand the original meaning. The original meaning. It's the first thing. You're, what was the original meaning of the passage? And Revelation is absolutely no exception because these actually were seven letters to seven actual churches. There were people who were recipients, people on God's heart, communities of believers set in these cities uh, whom God was really uh, loving and concerned about. And, and so when, when, we, when we try to understand the Bible, we, we just have to start with that question. What did you mean at first? What was the, what was the original, original message? Because not all of Revelation is about for later. It's about what, if you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, for example, when John was given instruction, he said, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will later take place. What is now, and what will later take place. So Revelation is going to be a mixture of what is now, and what's going to be coming later. So we have to really start with the question, what was God saying to the original people? You know, there, there are ways to look at the book of Revelation, for example, that even some of the mysterious symbolism can be interpreted as having applied to certain Roman authorities of the day. But they were said in a symbolic way so as to keep Christians safe. So it's kind of a code. And now people who push this to an illogical extreme are a group of people called preterists, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. I have I have put my toe in the water of preterism, and I, un I love it that it says there was an original meaning that we must not overlook. But preterists, at the end of the day, say that's all there is to it. That's not all there is to it because of what I just read for you. I want you to write down what must take place now and what will take place later. But we have to get it at the original meaning. meaning. The second message you want to look for is what is the eschatological meaning? What? Say eschatological, it's so fun. Yeah, it's got cat in it, right? That's good, right? Eschatological, that's a big word, of course. It's an important word, though. What's the eschatological? Eschatos that is a Greek word that means last or final. And so ology, zoology, biology, right, is a, a study of. So it's a study of those things that are going to be in the last times. And so when we say, what's the eschatological meaning of a passage? We're saying, what is this passage saying to us about what's going to come later? As I read for you in chapter 1, verse 19, some of which will be later. And the book of Revelation is, of course, rich with eschatology. And you've got this beast and these numbers and these scorpions, and you've got all kinds of things going, ay, 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 right? And you've heard all kinds of speculation perhaps, on what this may mean. Now, 
Some have made it their, their, their life to study eschatology. And that's a life well spent, as long as, you know, as, long as a couple of things aren't true. And one is that, that the study of eschatology doesn't consume a person to the point that they neglect their own actual walk with Jesus. You know, of far more importance than trying to figure out when the Lord's coming back and what the last things are is your prayer life, is your worship life, is your love for your neighbor, is your feeding the poor, is your praying for the sick, is your bearing the gospel, witness to others in such a way that they can be saved. These things are, these things are of primary importance. And so while I applaud people who become so interested in the study of eschatology, I, I, I just say, be careful if you go down that road that you don't neglect the truly important, the truly important aspects of what it means to be a Christian in the first place. And the second thing I want you to be careful of if you become interested, particularly interested in eschatology, is there's no reason to ever divide with other Christians over your point of view. There's no reason to ever divide. So there are some groups who have made it such a central part of the way they understand God that they'll say, if you don't hold to our view of eschatology, you're not a Christian. You're not one of us. Well, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. I would never, in a thousand years, I would never divide with another believer because we had a different interpretation of a series of events about which Jesus said, no man can know the day or the time, but only the Father who has set these things by his own authority. He's saying, this stuff's important, but not for the reason you think, not so that you can figure everything out. And so don't ever divide. Why? Because eschatology, listen, is not a salvation essential issue. Hear that? It's not a salvation. There are issues that are salvation essential. The cross of Jesus Christ is a salvation essential belief. No one is saved without the cross. No one, no one comes to the Lord except through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's a salvation essential issue. Eschatology is not. It, and, and here's another one that may be a little trouble. Neither is a person's view of creation. If you look at the first books of Genesis, I would never divide with someone over whether they had a, a, a different view, a different interpretation of the spans of time, et cetera, the details of creation. I would never divide with somebody over that because it's not a salvation essential issue. And I respect people who love and study that and look at much of the scientific information today and how it can integrate with a young earth uh, view. Uh, but I also deeply respect those who understand it in another way. And so I'm just saying these things aren't salvation essential issues. And you know what God's been doing with us lately is just connecting us with the greater church, right? Connecting us with the greater church around what? That we're all sinners in need of Jesus Christ as Savior and that Jesus is the only way. Beyond that, beyond that, you know, potato, potato, right? And so I'm just saying as you, as you think about eschatology and these things, don't get so wrapped up in it because I don't think your salvation with, with respect to these other things is going to be affected, your entry into heaven is going to be affected one whit by whether you guessed right. 
Because at the end of the day, you just have to go, I guess that makes sense. Okay. But look for the eschatological meaning. And then third, when you're looking at the book of Revelation, uh, look for the present day application. As in any study of any passage of the book of the Bible, what do we want to say? We want to say, what's the Lord saying to us today? So oh, look at, move in your Bibles, whether it's by page or device, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Oh, no, Hebrews 4. I'm not to 12 yet. Hebrews chapter, and, and this is be a familiar verse for, for many of you. But Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12, 13 say, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So it's talking about the word of God, which is the Bible at this point in our lives, the word of God. And, and I just want you to notice the verb tenses there, that it is living and active, that it does do, it does judge, it does penetrate. And so in this Bible that we have, there is always, always a present day application, that it means something, God is saying something. Now, here's where you have to be careful, because it doesn't mean God is saying anything. Sometimes we try to interpret the Bible backwards, and we want God to say this thing to us, and so we start searching for scriptures that will support that. That's a backwards, that's backing into the Bible, and you're going to have problems from the outset. Let the word of God speak forward to you. Let it speak to you and look for its present day message. Ask me, how do you find the present day message, Tom? I dare you. Three things. Number one, what do you think the first thing you should do is? Pray. Who said pray? Raise your hand if you knew that. You may go. You are done. I have taught you everything I know how to teach. Everything begins by saying, God, <laughs> I'm coming to this age, ancient writing. And I invite your Holy Spirit to come and lead me to the passage. Lead me to the meat. Lead me to the meaning. Once I do that, then I study the original meaning. The second thing I do is I always study the context and the original meaning. Because, listen, the present day meaning of a passage of scripture will never contradict the original meaning. It will never contradict it. God's word is abiding. It will have a different application, which is what we do in the third, is what we just ask God. We say, okay, now that I've, I've been there and I've let you speak to me about what you were saying initially to your church, what are you saying to me now? What are you saying to us now? What are you saying? And then you just spend more time in the P-R-A-Y time. Just let, let God speak to you. Let, you know? You know that place? You know that third place? Who knows what I mean? There's, you have your thinking place, right? Where you go A plus B equals C. That the sum of the square of the sides equals the square of the right? And you can do all this in your brain. And then you have an imagination side where you go, oh, color, dog, bike, oh. I can say you could just begin imagining. But as you continue to walk with the Lord, there's this third theater. There's this third place that opens up. You, you, you immerse yourself in his word, and it begins to speak to you there. And Jesus said, my sheep 
hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And it never contradicts God's word, never. But he speaks to you there. It's right there. <laughs> Think, imagine, hear. That's the best I can explain it. But ask God to tell you. Okay, let's do these three things with this book, this uh, brief few verses here uh, from the church of Smyrna. Uh, let's start with the original meaning. What was the Lord saying specifically to the believers in Smyrna? Well, let's start with Smyrna. There are only two references in the Bible to Smyrna. That's here and in the chapter before it when it's among the list. So we don't have a lot of biblical information about Smyrna. We do know that it was 40 miles north of Ephesus and... Uh, uh, that's about what we know. We perhaps know some other things through some extra-biblical sources. Um, it, but I want you to notice that it, it talks about their poverty. He said, I know your affliction and your poverty. Now, Smyrna was a prosperous seaport. Smyrna was a prosperous seaport. So why would he say, I know about your poverty? Because Christians tended to be the poor. Jesus went to the poor, didn't he? Christians tended to be the poor. They tended to be, particularly in these days, those who were overlooked, those who were not of Jewish heritage, those who were not of any heritage. They were the tumbleweeds. And, and in pours the Holy Spirit with the message of salvation to the Gentiles. And they tended, the poor tended to respond. The poor continue to tend to respond. Affluence tends to close our ears to the truth of the gospel. Have you noticed this? And when we go to the poor parts of the world and we start declaring Jesus, people come in droves. And so he says, I know your poverty. He wasn't talking to all of Smyrna, but to the Christians. What about these Jews who are not, who are a synagogue of Satan? That's not something I would ever want God to say of us. You're a synagogue of Satan. What was going on? These Jews were constantly trying to pervert the gospel. There's freedom in the gospel, Yeah. I mean, how many times did we sing it? There is freedom in the gospel. The Jews were so ticked off about that because they didn't have the freedom. They had all the laws and the rituals and the this and the that. And they said, it can't be that easy for you. And they were constantly trying to put laws, expectations, legalism onto the people. And it was constantly, at, in Smyrna at this time, there was likely a huge dispute about whether or not to continue to observe the Passover. Because the Passover, of course, is a critically important Jewish tradition. But Jesus came in the Passover and he said, this is my body, this is my blood. I'm fulfilling the Passover. And so there was argument about whether one needed to continue to observe the Passover. And uh, my opinion about that is I think it's wonderful to observe the Passover in particular when you understand who the body and blood is. But it's not required. And, and, and what strong words. Those guys are of the synagogue of Satan. They're blinded. What about this persecution in prison? Oh my goodness, Smyrna was such a place of intense persecution. Not too long after this letter would have been written, there was a bishop there named Polycarp. And uh, he was actually executed there in Smyrna because of his faith. Catch this. He was, what, what the account says is that he was burned at the stake, but the flames would not touch him. So they stabbed him.
He was burned at the stake, but the flames would not touch him. Can you imagine their surprise? Many years ago, Karen and I came under attack from some Satanists, and one day they, they threw a brick at our house that had 666, Satan is God, written on it. And they threw a brick at our storm door. But for one reason or another, I had changed it from glass to plexiglass. And I would have just loved to see their faces when that brick bounced off of that. <laughs> Persecution is part of it. And that was part of it for them. So the original message, I think, would have been Jesus is saying, this is me, the very son of God. I see your intense struggles. Don't be afraid. Stay the course, even to the point of persecution, imprisonment, and even death if necessary. Endure to the end, and you will receive a reward greater than anything you could ever imagine. I think that's what he's saying to the believers in Smyrna. The eschatological meaning, if we look at it, these last days, what's in there? Well, this 10 days of imprisonment has to mean something. But it's as speculative as can possibly be. You will find as many interpretations of what the 10 days of imprisonment, how it fits into the millennium and the rapture, a word that doesn't actually occur in the scripture, all of these things as you really want. But there's something there. Could mean many things because there's a number which can sometimes refer literally to days or can sometimes refer to seasons. But there's something there. But I think of far more importance is the reference to the second death. And you see, the last verse says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And that's an eschatological statement. What is the second death? This phrase occurs four times in the Bible, all of them in Revelation, and it refers to hell. It refers to condemnation. If you want to look at uh, Revelation chapter 21, for example, verses 6 through 8, probably the clearest explanation of the second death. So he's continuing to hear, John is, and he's saying, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Thank you, Jesus. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I love being a son of God, don't you? <laughs> I love being the son. He will be my son. But, verse 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That's pretty harsh. Hell is real, turns out. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list of specific sins. I'm sure the list could go on and on and on. So if you'd say, well, at least my sin is not in the list. What this says, people who are characterized by these things do not know Jesus. They do not know Jesus. They have not found their way to Jesus yet. If they're still beset by things such as these. And hell is real. This passage continues 
to urge us to go to the cross. You know, I think there are some here today who are ready to come to the cross of Christ. And you read that and you go, I'm in there. Just a few moments, I'm going to give you an opportunity to change all of that. Present-day message of, is so straightforward. It seems like, first, don't be afraid. Verse 10 of our text, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. Fear is such a thief, isn't it? Fear is such a thief. How many of you have made unproductive decisions because of fear? <laughs> How many of you have passed over what turned out to be amazing opportunities because you were afraid, right? Fear is a thief. And this passage says, don't be afraid. And it gives us reason not to be afraid. Don't be afraid. And, and fear is that, that sense of dread as we, that we experience as we anticipate a worst possible scenario. In our minds, we say, I know where that goes. And, and fear comes when we start to think of all the bad ways that it can go to the point of the worst possible scenario, and then we become afraid. And there's good fear and there's bad fear, but a lot of our fear is, is, is motivated uh, outside of reality, outside of facts. Illogical fear. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? You're motivated by fear that isn't grounded in reality. Some of you are afraid of flying. Well, not really. You're afraid of crashing, right? No one's afraid of flying. Oh, man. You're not afraid of, oh, my goodness. And in reality, there, I was looking at this thing, the uh, six things to be scared of before you'd worry about flying. You, you, have, a, you have a one in three million chance of, being, of, cra of dying in an airplane crash if you fly. One in three million. Um, you should be equally concerned about food poisoning. One in three million people die of food poisoning. Does that slow, down you, slow you down at the table? <laughs> no. Uh, you have a greater chance of being killed by a falling ladder. One in 2.3 million chance of being killed by a falling ladder. Household furniture. Your bed is not your friend. Next time you have a nap, remember there is a one in two million chance of dying from falling out of bed. <laughs> oh boy, I'm giving you lots of good things. Baths. Forget bubble baths, you have a 1 in 685,000 chance of drowning in a bathtub. I shouldn't have told some of you that. Fireworks. Considering they're pretty explosive, you won't be surprised to learn that there is a 1 in 615,488 chance of death from fireworks. Anybody watch fireworks recently? Were you afraid? Yes? Oh my goodness, let's do ministry right now. And, and lightning, you, you are 10 times more likely to be struck by, by, killed by being struck by lightning than dying in a plane crash. But we get on that plane, and we go, I'm sure this is it, Jesus. I just want to confess everything I can think about. And, whoop, what was that, Lord? Lord? <laughs> Bear us up. Mm. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings. Eagles, Lord, I'm holding you to that one. And, off you fly with this level of anxiety. I, just, I used to be anxious when I flew. I'm not anymore because I figured out it's not about the flying, it's not about the crashing. I actually got my pilot's license in part because I wanted to overcome my fear of flying, which is a crazy story. But anyway, 
I was I, I realized I, am not, I wasn't afraid of flying the first time I got to fly to India via business class. I'm not afraid of, well, you sit up there in the big seats. It's fantastic. I'm not afraid, it's not that I'm anxious about flying, it's I'm anxious about being stuffed into a little chair and I can't get out when I gotta go to the bathroom. Who knows what I'm talking about? Start breathing deep just thinking about those little chairs, right? They don't make them for real people. Good fear versus bad fear. Romans chapter 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? What do, you, what do we have to be afraid of if we belong to God? What are you afraid of? What are the things that frighten you? In just a moment, you're going to give them to God. And then second application here is invite the Holy Spirit to set you free from the prisons which hold you. Verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Hmm. Some of you are caught up in prisons, aren't you? You found your way into prisons. It can be attitudes. It can be speech patterns. It can be full-on blown addictions. And you feel like you're caught in a prison. Prison is a trap that you think you have no way out of, right? Well, the Lord's, the Lord's here to set you free. And I, I just need to tell you this about the prison, because there are so many addictions in our culture today that some of us begin to accommodate them. We probably all begin to accommodate something by saying, you know, I believe I'm, I'm saved. I'm saved. I know I'll go to heaven after this. And so... I'm just going to manage this addiction. It's such a trap because what I've discovered is we are only as free to serve God as we are free from addictions. And so while it may be true, you're saved, you know Jesus, all those things are true. To the extent that our addictions are imprison us, we are unavailable to glorify God. Who wants to be set free? Who wants to be set free from fear? Fear itself can be a prison, right? Are you ready? Come on. Let's see what God wants to do. Let's see what God wants to do. You've heard me. Now let's get to the good part. Mm, come on. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Come on. Let me be set free. Come on, let's see what God wants to do. You've heard me. Let's get to the good part. Now you hear from God. You didn't come from me anyway, did you? <laughs> oh, God. Come on. Come on. Come on. And be set free. Some of you want to come to the Lord. You want to, you, you realize that horrible thing about the second death and you go I'm not sure Christian would you stand up over by that door for us please brother thank you nothing would make him happier than for you to walk up to him and say I'd like to give my life to Christ today he's so gentle he's so nice he's so much nicer than me <laughs> just walk right over to him he really is <laughs> you'll, you'll never be sorry 
if you just walk over to them as we sing and just say, I want to give my life to Jesus. Who else wants to come? You want to be set free from a prison so you can be free to be used by God. You can be free from this nonsense, this oppression. Come on. Let's stand, church, please. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come now. These precious ones of yours who are just self-identifying. Nobody's pointing any fingers at anyone. They're just identifying themselves as men and women who want to be set free. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray now. Come, Lord. Come, they want to be set free. And now I want to encourage you who are here to have your own. I'm going to keep praying, but you have your own conversation with the Lord. Don't be passive in this. Be active in this. Lay it before the Lord, your prison, your addiction, your shame, whatever, your fear. Just lay it before the Lord. Oh, he's a forgiving God. He's a loving God. Holy Spirit, come. Let's get some people who know how to pray to come up and make a wall right behind these guys who have come. Come on up. You don't have to lay hands on them or anything. Just stand behind them. Pray for them. And then just follow the Holy Spirit's leading as he speaks to you. set free. Come and be a part of the wall. The two guys, come be a part of the wall. Come on. Please. Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. You can do this. I believe in you. That's all. I'm not going to ask anything else of you. Just stand there and believe. If God has set you free, 